0: Hi friends, this is your host, Dr. Solomon. Today, I am joined by Ron Carucci. Ron, the author of To Be Honest, is number one Amazon best-selling author for his book, Rising to Power. He is a TEDx and keynote speaker, executive coach, and a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and Forbes. Ron has been featured in Fortune, CEO Magazine, Business Insider, CNN, you name it. Congrats, Ron, on your latest book, To Be Honest, and welcome on Thrive.
1: Dr. Sullivan, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you for being with me today. So let's start with your new book, To Be Honest, How to Lead Through the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. Ron, you spent 30 years working alongside leaders and senior executives at organizations such as Citibank, Starbucks, McDonald's, Microsoft, did you get the sense that their mission statements are mostly on the walls, but not in the halls? And they are meant to signal the appearance mm-hmm. of purpose.
1: You know, I think when most corporations craft those words, I don't think there's an intentional intentional um, uh, deception. That people are not trying there's not, it's not a purpose-washing ruse. Um, I think what makes it become that is many leaders believe that the, the crafting of those words is, is somehow uh, gonna leak into people's behavior with mitosis. That, that just, just, just by virtue of being around them, somehow people will adopt and change their behavior. Same with the values or their brand statements. <clears throat> and I think what most leaders are woefully naive about is the fact that if you declare a promise, if you make a statement about your identity, um, that you actually have to embody it with active effort. Uh, and that it's, it's more than just a cosmetic set of statements. But unfortunately, when they don't do that work, don't work to align the organization's behaviors and practices to those words, by default, you have a sense of duplicity. You have a sense that we say one thing here, but do another. And I don't think leaders, while no leader would say, oh sure, I want a, a whole bunch of hypocrites in my organization. I don't think they realize the extent to which they're promoting that because they're not thinking, they're, there's no accountability mechanism that says, are you aligning your actions? to those behaviors, and nor do they hold the rest of the organization accountable for doing that.
0: And on this note, Ron, your team used IBM Watson's artificial intelligence analytics tools to extract patterns from more than, if I remember correctly, 3,200 interviews with employees, and they were working at all levels of organizations. And your team found that workers are four times more likely to be honest about the results in environment where they feel they can ask for help and learn from failure. So this begs the question, and this is piggybacking on what you were saying before, why do you think that this kind of safe environment is not the norm in organizations?
1: Yeah, it's very sad. It's a, um, in fact, my next article on HBR is going to be about this. It's, a, it's about how we define the word accountability. Right, so we, the sad thing about accountability today is that it has literally been reduced to a literal meaning of the word, a process of accounting. It literally means we just count up people's work and tally it up. The problem is that t- in today's work environment where the remit of people is much more about their ideas, their insights, their analytics, their creativity than it is the widgets they make, that you've now got this f- interesting fusion between the contributor and the contribution. So it's personal. When I assess your contribution, when I measure your contribution, when I talk about your contribution, it's automatically gonna be personal. And when you reduce that accounting to an annual f- set of forms, that clearly indicate that I have li- very little knowledge of what you did. In fact, if I, in fact, I asked you to fill out the forms for me and then I just signed them. Um, and, then you ha- and then you reduce the accounting to, to worse a ca- categorical thinking or a number, right? And you see people walking around. I actually had a, one of my interviewees tell me this. One of my former clients, Livid, said to me, she gave me a three. I'm always a four. I've always been top rated. I was a five. You know? And suddenly now, because the quota of four was given up, he had to be reduced. And, and his entire sense of himself, his boss, his work was lost by a number. And actually, one of the interesting studies we found in our research is that there's a brain study that shows your amygdala is triggered with, when you're categorized. It doesn't matter what category, even if you are in the top category, you get triggered because you feel unseen. You feel unknown. So leaders hold in their hands people's sense of who they are when they talk about their contributions. And our accountability systems lack two really important things today. They lack fairness and dignity. There's, you know, you, we, we, there are many roles or organizations that we privilege. You know, If you're in tech, you you get privileged as a engineer if you're in marketing or you're a brand or you're privileged so the, the playing field doesn't feel level and secondly um it's an undignifying process because i in, in the process of talking about your contribution i miss you as the contributor so for a sense of honesty to happen meaning people feel like they can tell the truth talk about their failures openly ask for help you have to make sure that the process has at its foundation dignity and fairness but if you ask anybody today, well, do you look forward to your performance appraisal every year with your boss or your monthly check-in conversation? Do you, are, you, are you eager to go in there and talk about your work? No one's going to say yes. People dread those conversations. They lose sleep over them. They sweat. And you think about what should be one of the most sacred experiences of an employee's uh, you know, lifespan in a company, the, the conversation about what they've contributed. E- even places where they've fallen short. where you have to give them feedback on how to improve. Even that should be sacred. That very process has been reduced to something that, that is dehumanizing, undignifying, and insufferable. And
0: I appreciate the example you shared uh, with us today about the person almost feeling his whole identity has been fused with a number. He became a number, like three out of five. And uh, that can definitely affect his sense, not only of sense of identity, but his sense of accomplishment, his sense of belonging to the organization. So before we move on, I'd like to ask our audience to open a new tab, look up n a v a l e n t N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com and click on the center where you will find Ron's articles and videos. You can also buy his new book, to be honest, on Amazon, and you can follow Ron on his Twitter account at Ron Carucci, one word. Ron, it is not a secret that competitive environments in organizations foster manipulative behaviors. Mm -hmm. And you elegantly wrote about this in a recent Harvard Business Review article. How would you respond to leaders challenging you that organizational honesty can put them and people around them in a liability position, given the level of manipulative behaviors going behind their back?
1: Well, I don't, I mean, I think all the evidence is on my side. You just need to look, you know, just read headlines from the last couple of weeks. You don't have to look far to see that, you know, you you put yourself and your organization at risk when you, you know, there's nothing that's going to stay hidden, right? 5,000 people didn't wake up at Wells Fargo all on the same day and go, hey, here's an idea. So if you presume that you can use self-interested, self-serving behavior or deception or, Um, distorting information to to advance an agenda and think that that's not going to come back to bite you. That somehow you'll you'll, you'll succeed when others won't. That's just a fool's errand, right? You know, whenever I ask audiences where I speak, it's always interesting to watch the response. I ask the question, how many of you feel like you have really, really sharp, well-honed BS barometers? All hands go up. You just instantly know when someone's blowing smoke at you. Then I asked the question, how come you all think that other people's BS barometers aren't working as well as yours when you do it? That somehow we think that our ability to manipulate or deceive others or distort the truth or bend a perception or conveniently leave a piece of information out somehow is effective because people will you know trust our intentions or trust our goodwill. And so you know the reality is that if you cannot accomplish your agenda, if you can't get a hard decision made, if you can't influence people to take a, a, a difficult risk with a transparent, balanced perspective on the benefits and limitations of your options, um, it's a pay me now, pay me later proposition, right? You may advance your agenda by you know, t- turning a few heads or distorting a few pieces of perspectives or winning people to your to your side now. But later, you know, it's not if things go sideways. It's just a matter of when things go sideways. There'll be setbacks. There'll be difficulties. There'll be surprises you didn't account for. And you will spend so much anxiety trying to keep up the ruse you created at the, at the outset of your work that when it goes sideways, you will see people bail on you. So to think that there's any gain to be had Uh, by not being completely transparent about what's working, what's not, the benefits, limitations of your decisions, um, what you need and what you don't, um, only to think that later that will carry the day. That's just foolish. Mm.
0: So, Ron, let's pretend that you are talking to an organization leader trying to make a change at the cultural level and embrace transparency and honesty in the halls, not only in the walls. Based on your book, what would be your top three pieces of advice to them to make this change possible? Well,
1: first, I would say just just engage your team in a hard and honest conversation about your actions. I would take your mission statement or your val- or your company values or your brand promise or your company's purpose statement. Bring some collection of the statements of identity your company makes about itself into the room mm-hmm. and ask your team some good-spirited questions around... For example, what do each of these statements mean to us personally? How do these statements shape my daily actions? Or how do I feel like they allow me to live out my purpose? Um, where are the places where we fall short? Where we our actions are not aligned to these statements? Where do we not shine? Where do we shine? Where do we see places where we actually embody these statements? Um, where do we see the organization discouraging these behaviors? Um, and what's, what's one thing we could do differently? What's one thing we could change about how we work as a team that would allow us to more closely embody what these words mean? And then on a regular basis, just check in with yourselves, just to closely align to see how intentional are we being in our choices to live by these promises. It's important to remember that those statements of identity have implied promises and promises aren't easy to keep. The second thing I would do is ask yourself and ask your team um, how level is the playing field of success on our team? Do, do, are there any jobs or roles or certain attributes that are privileged over others? In other words, does everybody have the same ch- shot at success? Um, and would they say they did? Um, wh- wh- where are you hearing a statement that's not fair? Because any place you hear people perceiving un- unfairness, you've set the stage for dishonesty because once people feel wronged, they feel entitled to take. And lastly, um, ask yourself, Across some organizational border outside your team, what is the team that most closely requires some important level of coordination or collaboration from your team, but somehow they become a rival or a nemesis? That they're the they're the team that your team refers to as them or they, you know, the ones that drive you crazy, that makes you nuts, that you roll your eyes when you know they're coming. Um, and ask yourself, first of all, how are you driving them crazy? How have you become mm-hmm. their they? Mm-hmm. But if that they were to become part of your we, in other words, if your sense of tribalism were able to broaden and somehow you were able to embrace a more collaborative relationship, what could improve? What could you co-create together? What value could you offer the organization together that you can't apart? And ask yourself, honestly, what's at the root of the rivalry? It's, you know, people always wanna blame personality conflicts, but, but really the, the roots could be deeper. Are there misaligned KPIs or are there processes that work across purposes? Are there expectations of each other that are not clear? Are there unclear decision rights or boundaries? And if you were to clean those up and have a much more cohesive relationship with them, what's at stake? And what value are you eroding by not fixing the relationship? So do those three things. Align your actions with your, your promises and be, be honest about whether or not. Make sure the, level, the, level, the playing field is level for everybody and pick some version of your they and make them part of your we.
0: Terrifically said, Ron, and I couldn't agree more with you. And for people watching us now, if you are enjoying this conversation, please subscribe to my YouTube channel and share the link on other social media so that others can benefit. And why not follow my updates at Dr. Solomon M.D. on social media. Ron, social distancing forced every leader now to interact virtually with their team. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, how can leaders and teams maintain the level of transparency you advocate for in your book while working remotely, where some, as you know, would prefer to hide their honest opinions behind emojis and kind, flattering type words?
1: Well, I think leaders have to remember that uh, this is a highly anxiety provoked environment. People are stressed, people are fearful, Um, working from home has been a great blessing for some, but a great hardship for others. Um, And so your ability and your requirements to create a more cohesive, engaged environment, it's just a higher difficulty of a dive, right? It went from a 6.6 to a 9.9 dive because people are distributed now. And so you have to increase your check-ins, but you have to make sure people want that. Some people may not wanna hear from you that often. Um, Most importantly, people have to see that you're a human. we have to accept that people's personal lives are never relevant to us. You're looking at people's dirty laundry in their home. You're looking at their children. You're looking at their kitchen tables and they're looking at yours. And so the more authentic you can be, the more transparent you can be about yourself, be vulnerable. Let them see your dirty laundry. Let them hear what you're struggling with. Let them hear the places where you, you are, are, are stressed or anxious. Don't, don't, don't frighten them, but let them see your humanity. And go out of your way to make sure you're, you know, in any of your one-on-ones, before you check on them, check in with them. Make sure they're okay. Ask them what they need from you. If you didn't have that level of intimacy and connection with your team before the pandemic, the pandemic probably revealed that gap. Because when you pull people further apart than they already are, you're not causing a gap. You're just revealing one. So if you have some ground to make up that the pandemic revealed, then double, double down. And work hard to build a stronger connection with your team, um, because even if it doesn't come naturally to you, recognize that that loss of trust or cohesion um, will cost you in performance. Um, and there's not enough hours in the day for the kind of surveillance you'd have to produce to watch people. There's not enough air in your lungs to keep talking, and and you don't want that. You don't. You should want people to be able to be self-sufficient on their own um, to want to build relationships. So you know, create rituals when you when your first t- team meetings start, and all your little. Squares of people appear. You know, start with, "Hey, what's your what was your working from home mishap this week?" You know, did you stand up with your sweatpants on, or you know, what what was what how'd you goof? Everybody has. I've watched some of my clients create these wonderful rituals. Everybody has a working from home mishap, right? Share them. La- learn to laugh at them. Um, make light of of the, the the goofy things we're all learning. We've all turned the Zoom camera on wrong. We've all you know forgot to go to a meeting. We're tired, we're afraid. And so, if you can't introduce some humanity and some empathy into that and care for each other and learn to laugh at it, um, that'll buy you a lot of credibility and, and, and create a sense of this is a safe place. I, I don't have to come here and hide something. I don't have to worry that you're going to see my kids running in the background trying to, you know, or I've got to stop to go help somebody with their math. Um, <clears throat> I think if you can, can make it uh, an authentic place of being human, uh, you'll go a long way to making sure people do trust you when you have to make a hard decision later.
0: I truly really appreciate the specificity of your questions. It is not just, how is everyone doing? Right. Most that. people will say, okay, fine. fine. Right, right, yeah, They usually would not go beyond that.
1: Yeah. What's yeah. one thing you've learned through the pandemic? What's been the hardest part of this for you? Um, what's one thing you wish was different? What's one thing you can't wait to return? What's one thing you hope we keep? Uh, There's lots of ways to talk about this, but the key is to talk about it Uh, Mm -hmm. and not tokenistically, but really genuinely. Mm
0: -hmm. So speaking of the pandemic and the setbacks that many of us had during that time, this is a question I ask every guest on Thrive. We all had life setbacks where we picked ourselves up and managed to thrive. Could you share a setback of yours and how did you overcome it?
1: Gosh, I, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. I have to go back more than a week to find one. But the one that comes to mind, Mohammed, is at the very outset of writing the book, to be honest, mm-hmm. um, it, it had a very difficult beginning. Uh, I hired an agent that was a little bit of a rookie. Um, the pitch to publishers didn't go well. Um, and it was mysterious I said why, but I got a lot of rejections before I got um, several offers on the book and, uh, and it was it became a, an existential crisis. I had bet a lot of my career and a lot of my life on wanting this book to do well. Um, and, and, the, and the existential crisis proved to be helpful to me to double down on my own convictions about writing it. but before that it was, it was it was unraveling. it was unnerving for me. it you know definitely assaulted my mental health in a lot of ways until I realized what the problem was. And the problem was you know in the proposal, we had just mispositioned me. Because what was very clear was that the people were, were not rejecting the book, they were rejecting me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just didn't understand why. And once I figured out what the, what the problem was and what, how they were misinterpreting some of the information in the proposal, I could go back and correct it. I could go back and say to publishers, could I just have a few minutes in the appellate court to make an appeal? <clears throat> and once I was able to say, hey, I think you're reading the data this way, but here's what it really means. They were like, oh, okay, totally different story. Yeah, love to do this book with you. <clears throat> but for the several, for the many months it took before I realized that, it was horrible. Um, I was confused and I had, this was years of my work. And, um, and after years of, and after five years of trying to build a, a reasonably good platform and extend my reach and my voice in the world, this was sort of the, meant to be the culminating moment of you know, earning my right to say something really important. And and so when it sort of had this whiplash effect, um, it was very confusing and disorienting and, and depressing. So, um, you know, and it, I, had, I had given up. I had actually decided, you know what? The universe is telling me this book is not meant to be born and I'm just need to set it down. But I was grieving. It wasn't just that my ego was bruised. It was really the sense of loss that this was something I really wanted to say. This was a, something I really felt I, I wanted to... Show my life's work in, Um, and so you know, lying over there on that couch one night, just you know, writhing in emotional pain. I thought, okay, I'll give it one more shot. Um, I'll go back to, you know, I'll continue to pitch to publishers, and I had, you know, parted ways with my agent, and um, I'll, I'll, if my hunch is right, at least I'll know. And it turned out that my hunch was right, Um, and then I had three offers on the book.
0: What a journey, Ron. What a journey. I can't imagine how hard it is, especially for someone whose book was number one best-selling, like Rise of the Power.
1: You know, you, you, uh, you're, only, you're, not, you're only as good as your last book or yeah. not. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I've made my living as a consultant not an author. And so I, I'm not that good at being a professional author. I, I can write and research the books, but selling the books has never been uh, my sweet spot, and I, it's never had to be. Um, and that became that became actually part of a demise of my of my editors. They were looking at that a track record, saying, "Well, this is not lining up." And so when I helped them recognize the disconnect that they were they were seeing that that in fact they were not drawing the right conclusions about my intent for this book, um, it became fine. But it ne- but it never occurred to me that that would be a problem in the proposal, and it should have occurred to my agent. Um, so. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's incredibly discerning when you see books. And listen, you know, we, the, 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 the business world publishes three to 500,000 books a year. I mean, it's a, lo- a lot of material. And you, you know this as well as I do, Muhammad, that the quality range is quite, quite vast. Yes. And so when you see books that are of very low quality, um, thin, you know, just not well-researched, performing super well, and then you think, here's a here's a book of substance, and and it's struggling to find its way. It's it's it's. Um, I had a you know my own sense of unfairness was triggered, and I and you have to get out of your head. You can't let yourself wallow in those moments of of um, sadness or self pity or you know you become entitled, you become surly, and I don't, I didn't like who I was becoming, um, and I had to really step away and say what what do I really want from this. What, what, what are my motivations for wanting to write this book? Why do I really care about this, this research and this content? And it, was a, it became a good forcing function. Existential crises have a purpose that are unpleasant, but they do serve as a galvanizing force for you to redouble your efforts on it to understand how are you aligned to your words and, a, and actions and how are you living out who you say you are. So it was a good, uh, it, it served a good purpose as, as, as painful
0: as it was. That's quite a story. Was there a moment where you realized, oh, there's something missing in the proposal? Like it's an aha moment or someone- It was, and I I don't
1: know. I mean, it just became probably over there on that couch, you know, rocking in my (laughs) fetal position, um, where I thought, oh my gosh, I see why they are rejecting me. They're confusing X with Y. And I realized, you know, I, I understood the intention of the proposal, but I didn't explicitly point out something important. And so they were confusing two different realities, and drawing a conclusion that you know I was a major liability as an author, not an asset,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I had to help them see. And I, we should have that could have been foreseen, right? That was something that was an agent should have foreseen, and, and we just mm-hmm. didn't do it. And so the way I tested my theory was I went back to several editors that we hadn't talked to yet, pitched the proposal, and when their instincts were the same rejection process as before, I know you're a liability. I asked for, I said, could we have just a phone chat? I think I have a point of view that maybe you're not seeing and I, you know, my bad, could I help? And, and, and they were editors were happy to talk with me and say, sure. And when I said, I think you're seeing this, but this this is what's actually true. They were like, oh, totally missed that. Yes, we want to do this book with you. So, um, but the entire time before that, I'm thinking what's wrong with me? Why?" I mean, you're just, you're going through this self-writhing and self-loathing and not understanding why, you know, there's just this organ rejection of you uh, and not your book. So uh, it, again, it, it proved to be a healthy process despite how painful it was.
0: And it's amazing that you put yourself in the editor's position when you think, oh, they are seeing it this way, you almost see stepped out of your own self to yes. see how they will see it or how they saw it and you try to reframe it. To yes. say, oh, actually, this is what I meant.
1: And and their and their conclusions, I mean, I didn't help them draw a different conclusion. I could have done that. We didn't. And so their conclusions were reasonable. They, I mean, they drew the conclusion that the proposal told them to draw. Um, so I led them to the to the, that outcome, but they didn't do it on their own. And so I didn't help them do anything else. And, and once I did, it's a different story.
0: Ron, now we are near the end of this lovely conversation. Anything you would like to share with your audience on Thrive that you have not shared before on any interview? Um, well, so uh, we have,
1: if you'd like to come, we have a, a wonderful brand new ebook that we've just launched called Designing the Virtual Workplace for all of us who are living in a, in a new hybrid virtual world. So if you come to navelint.com virtual, you can be one of the first to get that new ebook. Uh, and as you think about in your organizations, how to have people both at home and in the office and how to create a cohesive workplace with distributed people, uh, that ebook I think can be a great asset to you. So please come, come and join us Uh, We've got great videos and white papers and eBooks and lots of great articles. So uh, come hang out with us and join the journey.
0: What a pleasure to have you on Thrive, Ron.
1: Mohamed, it's been an absolute pleasure. You are such a delight to talk to. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for making the time to be on Thrive. And for people watching this episode of Thrive, if you're enjoying this conversation, Please subscribe to this YouTube channel and share the link on social media so that others can benefit. Please remember to check the resource section on Ron Carucci's website at nevalent.navalent.com, and why not follow my updates at Dr. Solomon, MD, on my social media. Until we meet next time, keep safe, keep motivated, keep resilient, and see you in the next episode of Thrive. Thank you.